0: The scripture reading for today is taken from the first letter to the Corinthians. This is in connection with dealing with the uh, seventh commandment. Last year we dealt with 1 Corinthians 6 and this year we are moving on to the next section, 1 Corinthians 7, which deals with this same commandment, expansion on a different part of this commandment. From a different perspective, 1 Corinthians 7, the verses 1 to 9. It's good, though, to read the lead-up to this because this passage is read within that context. Verses 19 to 20, it builds off of these two verses. So we'll go back to those two verses, and then our main focus will be on verses 1 to 9. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your, in your spirit, which are God's. Now, concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and each woman her, have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now we'll read together from Lord's Day 41, dealing with the seventh commandment, the next in the list of commandments that we've been dealing with over the last number of months. What does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in His commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, He forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. So far. congregation loved by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we understand that Christ's view of, uh, that that Christ turns society's view of sexuality and marriage on its head. In today's world, we see the label of marriage applied to so much that isn't in God's definition of marriage. We can think of same-sex marriages, so-called open marriages, cohabitation, or more. And then we see what Christ says. Not just in his time on earth, in the flesh, but as the God of the Bible, throughout all of Scripture. And we get that it's a lot different. But what we don't always think about is that it can challenge us personally as well. We can sometimes internalize points of view that actually aren't in line with what God teaches us about marriage. And we see a classic case of that in our passage today. More than that, we'll see how God, what God teaches in our passage today, applies to more of life, single or married. And how the main aim is the glory of God. So we'll look at this today as we look at our passage Under this theme, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, the main theme that Paul tackles today. We see what Christ actually protects, what Christ actually commands, and last of all, all to the glory of God. This passage opens with these words, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. There are a few things to look at here. First, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Why would Paul say this? Well, actually, it's not the Apostle Paul who's writing these words. And these are the words that the Corinthians wrote to him. They were asking him to address a question. Why would they ask him such a question? Well, consider this. Corinth was a city that was famous for sexual immorality. The Romans themselves were not exactly known as being the most virtuous when it came to being chaste. But Corinth, whether fair or not, there is debate on this, Corinth had a reputation for being hugely immoral. A playwright around that time named Aristophanes used the word to Corinthianize as a verb for terrible and immoral living. And sadly, when it rains in the world, it also often drips in the church. If you look at chapter 5 of this first letter to the Corinthian church, you can see that this very same point of view, and even worse, was making its way into the church. And some people were okay with it. Now, there was a group in the church that was very concerned about how okay people were with such immoral behavior. And so they swung the opposite way. We belong to Jesus Christ. They could agree with what the Apostle Paul said. You are temples of the Holy Spirit. Glorify God with your body. And their response to this immorality was to swing way the other way and to say we should be celibate all the time. This is not just for those outside of marriage, but it was something that they had as a command also for those inside of marriage. They thought that being celibate somehow made things holier. And so their conclusion was, the conclusion that they drew from all of this was, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So what's Paul's answer to that? Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and each woman have her own husband. seems almost a little odd, doesn't it? You must get married to avoid being sexually immoral. This almost seems to treat marriage like a bad thing, like only as a last resort to hold off sexual immorality, if you're looking at this first glance. Well in order to understand why he would say this, you need to understand the context. The Apostle Paul had just called out sexual immorality as a problem in their church, not too many chapters before. Those people who were living immorally, he had pointed to them and he said, this is wrong. And in the verses before our chapter, he ends off calling out their sexual immorality with these words, flee sexual immorality. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You're all familiar with the call not just to flee from things, not just to cut things out of the life, but also to seek to fill our lives with good and God-glorifying priorities, right? This is something that we've gone through in a number of different topics. And we see this also reflected in our catechism with this topic today. We are not only, question and answer 108, to recognize that all unchastity is cursed by God and therefore to detest it from the heart, but also to seek and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. It's a reflection of Christ's parable from Matthew 12. Don't just sweep out the house and leave it empty after the demon leaves, but fill it with good things. So the apostle Paul sees the call to flee sexual immorality, not just as something that stands alone. When we read this, we shouldn't just read it as something that stands alone. It leads directly to seeking new ways to glorify God, to fill that empty house. Because of sexual immorality, because immorality can be a temptation, the Corinthians who are betrothed but not married, or who are trying to stay celibate within marriage, well, they ought to get married, or they ought to recognize this relationship that God has placed them in. But there's a purpose to all of that. And it's not just to fight against something. It's so that the distraction of temptation would be set aside so that they can better pursue glorifying God with their bodies. So that the desires that God gave them, the natural desires with which they were created, were directed in a God-glorifying way. And now together they can glorify God with their bodies together with that person that they are married to. The aim is, though, the glory of God, not just running away from something. This is a good check on two inclinations that we find in society today. One is this this habit of engagements sometimes going on for for years and years and years. You don't find that so often within society. Our church circles, but sometimes outside. People who are dating, choosing to wait the better part of a decade until the 30 and have a career under their belt and more. I'm not talking about those who want to get married but have no one. But simply understanding and accepting that the natural end point, the good and beautiful created end point of two people become, coming together is one flesh. Yet we as human beings can take something that is good and beautiful and we can set ourselves up for failure by putting it so far in the distance that it becomes a terrible battle to continue to pursue holiness within our relationships together. There are times when being engaged for years and years is not exactly the wise thing to consider. Temptation can grow and grow during that time. And Christ calls us to be aware of that. By reminding us to flee from sexual immorality, he calls us to remember the purpose of marriage. Not just to have something that we can come together on now that we have a number of years under our belt of individual living, but to glorify God. The second inclination is the kind of people that we often look for. We can sometimes have a different view from God himself. If someone's relatively good-looking, likes me, seems nice, then I'm going to pursue them. But the bigger question that's laid before us here today in the mirror image of immorality being the pursuit and glory of God is this. We are to challenge each other as we look to see who we pursue. And as we teach our children, we raise our children up to look uh, what we teach them in looking for the qualities of a spouse. We ought to ask these questions. Will this person help me in my walk with God? Will this person help me pursue the glory of God in my family and in my home? This should be the first question on our mind. Sometimes we have this mindset of, well, you know what? This person is a fixer-upper, in my own mind, and I'm building a relationship with them, but, you know, I'm promising myself that I won't get more intimate with them until they are fixed up, whatever that looks like. But then again, we need to recognize that the good and natural creation of God is that people who are close in this way will grow in intimacy, and his desire is that a man and a woman come together and are married and become one flesh. So we need to be aware of two things as we look. The first is, am I looking for someone who will help me in my marriage, in my pursuit of the glory of God? And the second is this, whether married or not, am I looking to be someone? Am I looking to be someone who will above all treasure Christ and the pursuit of the glory of God also in my relationships? We can sometimes have it that we look around and we think, well, I don't see too many other people my age that, that seem to have the same priorities in this way, that priority of the glory of God, first and foremost. But then we forget to look at ourselves sometimes and recognize that our own priorities aren't always there either. But to seek together, to spur one another on, to lift each other up in this way. Also, young men and young women, as you're, as you're looking at each other, you know, the things that you look for in other people are the things that they are going to more clearly put on display. And if you spend all of your time making clear that you are only looking for good looking people, that you're first and foremost looking for super talented people, as opposed to that you're first and foremost looking for someone who puts Christ above all. And it shouldn't be a huge surprise if all of the people around us, all of the other young people, all of our peers, are trying to put these other things on display because we're not coming alongside of each other and we're not encouraging each other in this way. So to seek to encourage each other and Encouraging each other and putting Christ first and foremost, treasuring Christ in the pursuit of the glory of God. Now, if for those who are married right now and we find that we haven't been looking for the right thing in our marriages, that we've been holding our spouses up to a different standard, or that we've slipped in that priority, this is also Christ's patient and loving call for us to repent. And likewise, if we are dating or if we're looking for someone that we f- and we find this hasn't been our priority, God hasn't been our priority, Christ, through these words, is patiently and faithfully calling us to repentance. He's calling us to remember our purpose, even with our bodies, even with our relationships and the things we pursue, to encourage each other to treasure Christ as the highest joy in our relationships together, and to encourage our spouses to treasure Christ as the highest joy, our highest purpose being to glorify God. So in conclusion, for those first few verses of our passage, fighting sexual immorality is a fight to protect something greater than, themselves, than, than ourselves and a fight to pursue something greater than ourselves. When you are, by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, choosing to fight lustful thoughts, temptations, and actions as a Christian, you're not just fighting against immorality, but you're fighting for something, for a treasure. You're fighting for the glory of God in your life. And as you prioritize that more and more, God himself reminds you that he has already taken up the battle for you through Jesus Christ. When we failed in priority, or when we failed in purity, where we have sinned, he patiently and lovingly, yet urgently, calls us to repentance. More than that, though, he calls us to a new life, a new way of living, to a fresh and clean start in him. He desires you who believe today to live for him to his glory. Because you are his temple, he dwells in you. And he has redeemed you to a new life. So what does this new way of living look like then? How do I go about fighting for holiness, fighting for the glory of God in my marriage or in my relationships with people? This brings us to the second point that we look at, especially coming out in verses 3 to 5. There are several things that the Apostle Paul calls us to in these three verses. And these verses can be hard. Because the pursuit of holiness is a long, hard road, and the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Sanctification is a cleansing experience. We are putting to death what our Flesh desires. Praise God, it's not a road we walk alone. Because we know our own sins and weaknesses and shortcomings that we're constantly confronted by. Our lack of humility in our relationships. The fact that we frequently are so curved in on ourselves. We we look to ourselves first. That we catch ourselves in little ways speaking resentment in our hearts even if we don't voice it with our mouth and the need to rebuke ourselves quickly, the better we know ourselves, the more we can stand in awe at this great calling. Yet in all of that, we know we're not doing it alone. Precisely the reason that we are doing this encourages us. So why are we doing this? Well, the Apostle Paul reminded us just in the verse leading up to this. We're doing this because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. We're to seek purity because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. But this also means that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will not leave us alone in this fight. He is our comforter when we fail. He is the one who works faith in our hearts that ties us to the cleansing power of Jesus' sacrifice when we sin as we look to him for forgiveness and change. And he is the one who empowers us in this new life to which the Father calls us. We are not alone. So there are three ways that we can fight for holiness in marriage laid out in these verses. And this is also something to think about for those who look towards marriage as they are in relationships or perhaps pursuing relationships. What's the first? Verse 3. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. What is the affection due her? Well, in order to understand this, we need to first briefly reflect on what marriage is meant to be. Marriage, as the Apostle Paul reminds us in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 25, This is the the, the background behind Paul's conversation. He has this greater picture of marriage in his mind. It's a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. Marriage is to be a shadow, a reflection of that greater and more beautiful relationship. This selfless and sacrificial love, this undying loyalty and faithfulness. A Christ who would die for his church. It's a picture of the grace that was first shown to us, the unlovable. We have Christmas Day coming up when we see this clearly put on display. When Christ gave us humanity, gave us as humanity marriage as a gift to represent Christ and his church. Again, Ephesians 5 has more on that. But when, when God gave humanity, marriage as a gift to represent Christ and his church, God and his people. He also taught that we are to seek to image this in our lives as well. So there's two things to notice here in verse 3 for the regular married life. Things change in a situation involving abuse and abandonment, sexual immorality, which Paul later brings up elsewhere. We're not going to get into into that today, but there's two things to notice here for regular married life. First, the affection due to her or due to him is not only if we feel that he or she deserves it. As Christians, we actually don't have that freedom because we are sinners we are sinners, and our feelings are also clouded by sin when we interact with each other. We are sinners as well. Christ himself is the one who reached out to sinners first and foremost. Christ is the redeemer of sinners, his bride, his people. The picture here is that if we are to image the relationship between Christ and his church, we are not to show affection only to those who deserve it, who we feel deserve it. Christ is the redeemer of an undeserving people. He is the one who sacrificially loved. He calls us to humble ourselves, just as he humbled himself in order to come down out of his glory to earth, to humble ourselves, to image the relationship between himself and his people as we deal with each other. To deprive each other, we read in this passage, is to to deprive each other is to defraud one another. That's the literal word that's used in the following verse. We read in verse 4, in in verse 5, so I do not deprive one another. To deprive one another of such things is to defraud one another. That's the literal Greek word that's used here. And it's pretty strong. Maybe stronger than, humanly speaking, you and I are comfortable with, and yet this is what God says. It's right there on the pages of Scripture and inescapable. He teaches us to deprive one another of this, of seeking this, is to defraud one another. The second thing to notice here is that not one, but both are called to this. Now this is huge. Let the husband render his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. This turned the Roman culture of the day on its head. Sure, they felt, the, the husband was due certain rights, but the wife had very few. The husband was the one with the patria potestas, the ultimate power of the male father figure in the home and the power of life and death over his households. So yes, he was due the affection and the loyalty and the faithfulness of his wife. And yet, what did he care about his wife's feelings? In Roman society, the husband could get away with a whole lot of adultery. The husband could get away with many mistresses on the side. The husband could get away with abusing the slaves in his household. And a lot of people wouldn't look twice. But the wife the wife would face the power of the law if she tried to do the same thing as her husband. The husband, on reading these words of Paul, he would say, yes, the first part, let the wife show the affection that is due to her husband. But, the other part of it, let the husband also show the affection that is due to his wife, would turn his whole world on its head. Today, if you have the mindset, this is for others, not for me, it's a corrective. This is for my spouse to hear, but not for me. It's a corrective. God rejects that culture. More, he completely rules out abusive behavior and language with this. No, as a figure of Christ's love for the church, let a husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. So that was the first very challenging thing that we find here. And now we see the second, the authority over the body, in the verse that follows. Equally challenging. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There are another two things to think about here. In the first place, again, what God teaches here unashamedly turns Roman culture on its head. The ancient world would be okay with what they saw as the husband's authority over his wife's body, but they certainly would not be okay with part two of that equation. A wife has equal authority over her husband's body. The two become one flesh, God teaches. And this has serious implications for married life together. There are those who shudder at this thought. They believe that this verse means that a husband can just demand from his wife and use scripture like a club. And yet God puts the brakes on that. Notice the pattern of scripture in our passage It's not no reason that this phrase comes after the previous verse. Again, verse 3, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her. What does that look like? It's not for a husband to use this verse of Scripture like a club. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 5, we read that we are not to act in lustful passion like the Gentiles. This is true all the more in a Christian marriage. Neither men nor women are allowed the right to bully the other spouse into submission with words and definitely not with behaviors or actions. These things show a mindset with personal satisfaction at the heart and not the glory of God, pursuing the glory of God together as a husband and wife, which is the foundation that the Apostle Paul has set out. In a relationship in which the husband renders to his wife the affection to her and likewise the wife to her husband, the demanding and asserting of rights is left by the wayside. But it's not just demanding and asserting rights that's left aside. In case you would go to the other extreme, verse 3 gives a very practical recognition of the wrongness of completely abstaining from intimacy in marriage as well. Again, he is speaking to, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And this was their picture that they said, even within marriage, you should abstain. Most often, humanly speaking, men have a greater drive for intimacy than their wives do. Sometimes it's the other way around, sometimes it's neither. But the point here is that marriage is a commitment to each other, not just emotionally or spiritually, but also physically. That's how God created it, as the two become one flesh. Yes, one flesh is so much more than the physical, and it is that image of Christ in the church, but it also includes the physical. And in a relationship that's marked by the affection and love of the previous verse, we should recognize that we are called to serve each other in this way too. As we look at this, we should also recognize what God is using this for. If intimacy becomes hard between a husband and wife or impossible between a husband and wife in their minds, this is also to be seen as an early warning sign, a check engine light. Why is this the case? We are one flesh. And it has all of this tied together with it? Are there things that are starting to sow seeds, starting to damage between, place damage between the two? Why is this happening? Are there things that we need to talk about and address? As we are... Two becoming one flesh. This verse goes on to teach us the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. As we reflect on these words, we hear also God's call to serve each other and not to give any room for temptation to the devil. In verse 2, and also the second half of verse 5, there's a very real acknowledgement that becomes harder for those who are alone both within and outside of marriage, to fight temptation if we don't use marriage and intimacy the way that God designed it. So yes, we also are called here in Scripture to serve each other in this way. There is, however, an exception And this is one we should take very seriously. This is the third thing that he brings up. How do we glorify God? Serving each other in this way, but also recognizing this exception. And this is one we should take very seriously. This is one that I think we don't often think about either. The exception of prayer. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5, do not deprive one another or as the Greek also says, defraud one another. The reason that it's translated as deprive here is because there's an except here and so you can't have an exception for defrauding so it leans more towards deprive. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time and that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come again together so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now we must be clear. This passage's reference to temptation makes it easy to abuse and use it as an excuse for sin, but that's not why it's given to us. Scripture is never an excuse for sin. Your sin is your own decision, and you must take ownership of your sin itself. Don't find yourself in the position of Adam in the Garden of Eden saying, the woman you gave me, she led me to it. It's not a safe place to be. That being said, here in verse 5, we see God's patience and love for his people set out yet again. Because we can recognize the brokenness of this world. We can see the question arise, what about the brokenness that so often also happens in marriage, in a sinful world, and in different unique situations that arise? There's a recognition of that here in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 7. There can be times when things come between you, things that make it very difficult to give yourselves freely to each other, also for intimacy. And God shows us his patience, his understanding and love in these times too. I give you the freedom to take time, he says. But don't do it without a purpose. Take time to figure out what's going on between the two of you prayerfully. This too is glorifying to God. So often we have it that a husband and wife will just turn their backs on the other and a wall will begin to grow and they will become content after a time, as content as you can be with the status quo. With separation. And as physical intimacy goes by the wayside, spiritual intimacy follows. Speaking with each other follows and quietness descends on a household. But can you imagine what relationships before God would look like if this is what every Christian in both sides of the marriage, assuming both are Christians, did? Can you imagine how much pain we would set aside if we followed God's call to use marriage in the way that He designed right from the beginning when we said, I do? Instead of dwelling in misunderstandings and arguments and in bitterness that divide us, we keep the channels of communication open between each other and God. If we mutually agree to spend time in prayer together until we figure things out together before God, We are humbling ourselves and returning after a time of conflict with that mutual goal, that mutual aim. Each of us seeking to put our own selfishness to death, each of us holding the other's interests above our own, each of us seeking to give each other the affection due to each other, all aiming at Christ. By the Holy Spirit, each of us aiming to have our marriage look like Christ's loving relationship with his bride, the church. There can also be seasons in which, for other spiritual reasons, you both choose to deliberately fast from both food and intimacy. The apostle says here to spend time in drawing closer to God. There can be times when physically there are reasons not to be intimate. All such times are very much reasons to call on God in prayer. To bring each other before the throne of grace. To fervently pray for one another and for your marriage in love. Consider a world in which two sinners both approach each other on the footing that Christ lays down here. They pay attention to the marital check engine lights, you might say, that God places. They seek God's glory together, seeking by His Spirit to put self to death, to image Christ in the church. On the basis of their affection, do each other, do each other as fellow redeemed people who have themselves been granted the affection of Christ just as much as we ourselves had, on that basis showing affection to each other as they forgive one another, pray together, and grow together, how different life would look. How different that so often is from the way that we do do things. Christ holds up for us a better way. He calls us to repent and calls us to newness of life. And he promises that those who aim for his glory will be blessed. And that highlights again the ultimate aim of marriage to draw us closer to Christ and to reflect Christ all for his glory with a very real caution that we should recognize the weakness of the flesh and not give the devil a foothold. But also with a very real call to come to Christ and find strength and find unity with the promise that it will be found in him. So again, our aim is so much more than just not to be sexually immoral. It's to glorify God. It's to use our bodies, our sexuality, our becoming one flesh, our relationships, all to honor and serve Christ. And to follow Christ in all of our lives because we want to serve the one who redeemed us and to rejoice in the forgiveness that he gives. This brings us to our final point, the glory of God. Here we get to that closing bracket of Paul's discussion today where the focus of our text shifts from married couples to all Christians. He closes with the words, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. This verse is the closing bracket of an argument that began in verse 2. So let's take a quick moment to refresh. When the Apostle Paul began writing in this chapter, he was talking about the phrase that he was challenged on in the Corinthians letter to him, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, which is to say to remain celibate either within or outside of marriage. In the foundation of, okay, we should be doing this in light of the glory of God. And he says, because of sexual immorality, or in the words of verse 5, so that Satan does not tempt you, you should seek a spouse if you can. If you're in a situation in which you feel you can be tempted. There's no shame in this desire. There's no shame in seeking. There's no shame in even going to something like reformsingles.com or, or whatever the website is. Seeking a spouse can be to the glory of God In the words of verse 9, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And his conclusion here is, but I say you should get married as a concession, not as a commandment. And here is where he broadens out his argument. Marriage, he says, is not the end all and be all. The glory of God is. And that can be pursued no matter where you are found. Sometimes in churches that love families and rejoice in children, single people can wonder what their place is. And the first part of what the Apostle Paul teaches can maybe even feel a little discouraging. But Paul isn't saying that everyone should get married that marriage is the end-all and be-all and the only way to be a biblical Christian. In fact, he goes as far as to say, for I wish that all men were even as myself. That's to say, single. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them to remain, if they even remain as I am. If they remain as I am, though, because, he says elsewhere, how is he remaining in singleness? You can do it. your, Your mind is not caught up with as many earthly things. For the Apostle Paul, it meant that he had many more hours in a day for preaching and for winning of souls and for living intentionally to the glory of God in this way. You have more freedom and time to serve in ways that people who have families have a more challenging time of doing. If you're happy and content being single, then the Apostle Paul rejoices in that. He says it's nothing to be ashamed of, it's a gift. Singleness within this context, singleness is a gift from God. And contentment with that is an even greater gift from Him. Now for those who do struggle, those wanting and looking for a spouse outside of of marriage, or who deal with loneliness within marriage, who in that context genuinely want to submit to Christ, but for some reason at this point that door remains closed because of the hardness of heart of a spouse. For all those, Paul's words about singleness is still actually a great comfort you are not ruled out or forgotten. Our loneliness, our desires, do not disqualify us from kingdom work or from the kingdom of God. It can make things more challenging, yes. But our ultimate aim is to glorify God. And as we submit our desires, our hopes and our dreams, our wants to Him, He begins to free us He guides us by taking that energy that would otherwise go into other things and he directs it to service to him, to his glory. And he more and more makes his glory our highest joy. No matter what stage of life you find yourself in, no matter what your life situation is, chapter 6, verse 20, that You were bought at a price. Or verse 19, that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit is still true for the Christian. You're not truly alone. You have someone who loves you and treasures you deeply. You were bought at a price. He lives in you and will never leave you. You belong to him body and soul, both in life and death. Therefore glorify him. Making His glory our highest joy doesn't always mean that you feel less alone. It doesn't mean that sadness may not creep over you at times. But it does mean that your life is not governed or consumed by those things. You are not enslaved to them. Christ has set you free from that and has set you on a path of service to Him as you seek His glory first, because you belong to Him, because you are His treasure. You will have periods of sorrow and feeling the weight of loneliness in the midst of that, but it doesn't govern you. Your life changes as it's more and more governed by the pursuit of His glory. Make Christ your highest treasure, loved ones. Your highest joy. Live as you were called, both within and outside of holy marriage. He will bless that. You will see how he gives you himself more freely and more fully each day as you seek him. How you you find the depths of his love going deeper and deeper. You will see how he changes you and transforms you as you serve and love in the community that he's placed you in to his glory. And as time goes on, you will see your highest joy and your greatest desire fulfilled. By his grace, you will see how he is genuinely glorified in your life, both on this earth and after this, as he calls you home to eternity. Amen.